But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Our good and our holy God, as we gather in this place today around this passage of Scripture, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. That you would give us tender hearts that would receive your word as a seed planted in good soil. That you would give us feet that would walk quickly to do your will. That you would strengthen our arm for deeds in this earth. That our work would be as your very own. And God, we pray that a word of testimony and life would be found on our lips. Lord, this is our prayer. In the sweet name of Jesus. And we pray together as a family of faith saying, Amen and Amen. Please be seated. I confess to you already I am as disoriented as can be. You are not in the right places. <laughs> Once, when I first came to the church, I was doing a, a sermon on outreach and evangelism. And I said, just for one, one week, just sit somewhere else and meet new people. And I was thrown so bad. I mean, it just messed me up totally and it jacked you up too. Uh, but for, for a little while now, we'll be in new places uh, this summer, and I'm glad to see you, see you where you are and snuggled up together. This is not normally the time of year when we do that. Uh, in fact, this is the time of year where everybody has the same last name, Turner. I'll take my turn, you take your turn, and uh, the rest of the time we'll be on the road, you know. So glad you're here, glad you're, glad you're in your spots. Uh, and if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn me to Isaiah chapter 40. We're continuing our series on coffee cup verses, those verses that seem to land on coffee cups and t-shirts, those verses that are cross-stitched, that are quoted, that are used on greeting cards that we use to in- encourage one another. And sometimes those verses that are taken out of context and mangled up. Uh, we've looked at a number of those already this summer, and we'll continue to, to look at those as the summer progresses. And today's verse, as we have already heard, is that beautiful line uh, from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. Uh, I think maybe this one gets, uh, gets, gets its place on coffee mugs because it, it cites eagles. And eagles are cool, aren't they? Uh, and if you have to have a gift item for a man and you're going to sell it in a place like Mardell, you've got to have at least an eagle that you can put on there to look tough. So this is the great eagle verse from Isaiah. Uh, what I'd like to do this morning is just put this ruby in, in the ring, if you will, to put, to put this diamond in its setting. Uh, this beautiful verse about God's renewing strength comes to us uh, in, in the book of Isaiah. Uh, this week I read the book of Isaiah again, and I would encourage you this week uh, as you go to your, your devotional time, as you, as you go to your time where you read Scripture, uh, I would encourage you to read again, read fresh the words from the book of Isaiah. Because Isaiah, the backdrop of Isaiah is a painful time in, in the nation's history. It's a time of discipline. It's a time of, of exile. It's a time where God calls Isaiah to speak hard words uh, to, to his people. You remember that great worship scene where Isaiah sees God and he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And, and we use it when we talk about missions. And I've used it a thousand times. Who will go for a, I'll go, you know, kind of thing. I'll, I'll do it. Uh, but the message that God gives them is a message of judgment in that, in that scene. 
Uh, and largely, Isaiah is a, is a message of God's discipline and God's fierce displeasure of a life that's lived disconnected uh, from a vital, real relationship with himself. But when we get to chapter 40, we get to what's known as the book of consolation, where there's this plural imperative given to this, the prophets of God, and Isaiah responds to it, uh, this call to comfort, comfort my people. It's where we get some of the most tender, beautiful lines in, in all of the Bible. Uh, and if you were not a person of faith, if you are not someone that followed Christ, I would encourage you to read Isaiah strictly for the, for the literary quality of the sentences. The words are breathtaking. And chapter 40 begins this breathtaking section about God's tender, fierce, passionate Love for his people, this, this book of consolation. Uh, and Isaiah 40, 31 uh, is a line about this. It's about how God wants to supply for his people strength for a life of faith and faithfulness. But you have to hear that in its, in its broader place. And that's what I want to do this morning. I want to linger over the words of Isaiah 40, the beginning of this book of consolation. And, and I want us to hear again these words, comfort, comfort my people. We, we begin uh, in the first two verses of chapter 40 with this call uh, to comfort. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord hand double for her sins. So there is this call to comfort, but it's not a saccharine, sentimental call to comfort. It's not a, oh, you know, it, it doesn't really matter. All of that is we just forgotten about. No, it's, it's, this, it's this honest, straightforward, clear, passionate call to comfort on the other side of this judgment. It's a God who would say, I, I had great displeasure at what happened, so much so that I could not stand idly by. I love you. I love you. This is a God that will deal squarely and honestly with sinfulness and brokenness and a God who will fly in and bring comfort. Here is this call to comfort, comfort my people. And I believe that God's people still need to hear this word. And friends, let me tell you, let me tell you, just being a religious person, going through the rhythms of religiosity, doesn't mean that we are putting ourselves in the position to experiencing the, the comforting grace and touch of God. Quite often, religion just flat comes up short. In the book of Isaiah, when God's people left him, they never left their religious practices. You see this example throughout the book of Isaiah. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 10, hear the words. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy to us illusions. Encourage us in the midst of our rebellion that everything's going to be hunky-dory. Everything's going to be fine. That there, will, there will be no judgment to fall on this. Just speak to us illusions. Make us feel better. Tell us that we can have our best life now. Prophesy to us sweet things. There was a time where God looked at them and said to them, They honor me with their lips, but their hearts, their hearts are far 
far from me. Just the, the wheels of religion spinning didn't guarantee that they would experience the life-giving grace and the mercy of God. I've said many times from this place that Walker Percy is one of my favorite writers. In his novel, The Thanatos Syndrome, he has a number of priests in that novel. Uh, there is an old priest who has kind of a nervous breakdown and goes up in a fire tower to live, sort of live like a broken down stylite. And that creates a problem uh, where he's working. And the younger priest complains because he doesn't have the priest around to share the load with him. Uh, and, he, and he's complaining about this need. I need some help. Send me somebody that can help me uh, with the work of being a priest. And this is the confession of the young priest to his, to his friends who, who he's calling out for, for help. He says, I'm a very ordinary guy, and I have to baptize babies and run the school and such like. I'd like to preach the good news of the Lord, but it seems like I don't have the time. We're sitting in a sanctuary full of God's people and paint buckets. There's a lot of such like. All the time, there's such like. There's something that calls for our attention, something that calls for our, our energy, something that calls for our passion. There's, there's something, and, and those some things are, are often very, very good. But quite often, we can miss God in the midst of the such like. And that's what was happening to God's people. They missed him in the midst of the such like, in the grocery getting, in the going, in the doing, uh, and, and all this. Uh, God got cantankerous because God is alive, and God got too difficult to deal with. So they started carving God and putting him in, in their pockets. They had a hard time with a living God, but they wanted some religious stuff, so they just stuffed God in their pocket. And it broke them. And they found that that's not a, a way that life can be lived when you're a person of the covenant. And in the midst of that, God came and God was working in their lives. And they were learning in the midst of it all that God, God, only God is the true and the right comforter. God indeed is the comforter. God said in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 13, As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted. What a tender sentence. This is the verdict of God over his people. You've been looking for life and vitality in all the wrong places, but I, I am your comforter. Like a mama holding a crying baby to her, to her bosom. I will be, and I long to be that for you. I long to be the covenant God who gives you life, who gives you courage, who gives you nurture. I will be your comforter. T.B. Masson, the great Baptist ethicist of a generation ago, wrote a book on suffering. Masson and his wife had a son at birth, was confined to a wheelchair. He never walked. He couldn't speak. He could not feed himself. And they shared their life together, mother, father, child, until he grew up to adulthood. He would travel with them. He'd go with them. They, they just spent life together, and they loved their son, and their son loved them. 
But in the midst of their love, there was real challenge and real suffering. And this great thinker wrote a very tender and personal book about that experience. And in the beginning of that book, he talked about his church, the mid-sized church that, that they attended. He talked about how he would sit on the back pew. That's where they always sat, was on the back pew. Last week when we came in, there was one rim of pews on the back of the sanctuary and a big gulf between them. Peter Emerson said, I bet you a dollar that somebody sits on those pews. And I said, Peter, I would never, I would never make that bet. And I said, it's not because I'm making a moral argument against gambling. I just don't want to lose my dollar. I said, of course, I said, of course they're going to sit back there. And sure enough, about 12, 15 people lined up right around there. There was a great chasm between us. Uh, I, I need that for a sermon illustration for a later date. Um, but Mastin would sit back there on that back pew. And he, he would look over the congregation. And this, he said, this is what he said. He said, almost every type of sorrow and suffering that has been mentioned is evident in our church and community. Ours is a medium-sized church. My wife and I sit behind the back pew with our invalid son in a wheelchair between us. We have been members of this church for a long time, and many of the members have been neighbors and friends uh, for many years. Our church includes some of the best people we've ever known, and some of those people have had unusually heavy burdens to carry. I would not want to embarrass any of them by spelling out their problems too specifically, but as I have looked over the congregation and have seen the many who suffer for one reason or another, my heart has frequently cried out with the prophet, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith our God. In the midst of a challenging life, Master knew what God's people have always known is that God is the only reliable source of comfort. And here is God speaking to his speakers. Comfort, comfort my people. How did he go about it? What did he do? Well, let's find out. The first, the first thing he did is that he called them to make a, a way for the Lord. Let's begin reading in verse 3. A voice cried out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and the people shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord God has spoken. You might remember these words being applied to John the Baptist in the New Testament, this call to prepare a way for the Lord. He begins in his preaching, and he, and he calls uh, to, to, to make roads and pathways for a visitation and a, a meeting with God, to, for God to bring them where he wants them to be, uh, and to be for them who he wants to be for them. I call my grandmother, Rita, uh, pretty frequently, and, and it's gotten to the point in our relationship where it's almost the same conversation every time we talk about the, the same stuff. We, we just kind of have settled in on a few things that we're going to talk about till, till one of us is, is on the other side, I guess. Uh, and, and one of the things that Rita almost always brings up, she says, Matt, she goes, I'll never forget when you were a little boy uh, how, how easily you were to entertain. I thought, great, my, you know, cats are easy to entertain. <laughs> I must say a lot for my intellect. She said, she said, if you were fussy or something, all I had to do is take you out to the car and put you up behind the wheel, and you would pretend like you were driving for hours. I said, yes, ma'am, I remember. Uh, I still like a good trip, you know. I still like to hit the road. I got a little gypsy in my soul, I, I guess. Uh, and, and I love those long car trips as a kid. 
where you'd look out those windows and miles and miles and miles would pass. Uh, in a lot of ways, I'm grateful that I grew up before the advent of those things that you stare at all the time. I'd have missed so much. But I remember watching the sides of the highways uh, driving across North America uh, and seeing those, those big sections of rock that were just cut, cut away. You could, you could see where, the, where the, the drills went down, where they would drop explosives, where they were just cutting those highways out, making those roads. From, the, from my earliest memories, I was mesmerized at that scene. Dreaming about the men who came through there and the heavy equipment and the blood and the sweat and the tears and the life that was spent to make that road. That's the biblical image for the preparer of the way. That was the biblical image here in Isaiah uh, for John the Baptist. Uh, It was the biblical image as God gets ready to visit his people with a touch of grace and comfort and compassion to do something new like bring the Messiah into the world. That's the image of what happens and the image is that you, you drop the mountains and you raise the valleys and you build a highway. How did Isaiah do it? How did John the Baptist do it? They did it by calling God's people back to God. Back to their primary commitment and relationship. Back to intimacy with the creator and a, and a lover of the soul. They cut holes in the mountains by calling us to repentance and renewal. And as we worship in this house today, when we ask the question, how did God comfort his people through Isaiah? What was the message? That was part of the message is come back to me. Come back to me. But that's not all he did. Uh, We move on within the the chapter, beginning in verse 6, and we see that he paints a picture of God's character, uh, and he calls us to see the Lord as he is. Uh, It says, A voice says, Cry out. And I said, Why shall I cry? All peoples are grass. Uh, Their constancy uh, is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass wither, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Get you up to the high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good things. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother sheep. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, the weight of the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has instructed him? Whom did he consult for his enlightenment and who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge? And showed him the way of understanding. Even the nations are like a drop from a bucket. And are accounted as dust on the scales. See, he takes up the owls like fine dust. Lebanon would not provide fuel enough. Nor are its animals enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A workman cast it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and cast it with silver chains as a gift one chooses mulberry wood, wood that will not rot, that seeks out a skilled artisan to set up an image that will not topple. 
Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to live in, who brings prince to naught and makes the rulers of the earth as nothing. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows upon them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then... Will you compare me, or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host and numbers them, calling them by name, because he is great in strength, mighty in power. Not one is missing. In these verses of Scripture, Isaiah paints a startling and beautiful picture of who God is. If you think back to your earliest days as your mom and dad, possibly your grandparents, or or someone was teaching you how to pray over your meals, uh, they gathered you together, and before you were SpaghettiOs or or chicken nuggets and mac and cheese or or something more healthy, uh, right there, you need to pray over those mac and cheese things. You know, they're scary. Uh, Bring it together, and, and it's, okay, fold your hands, close your eyes, let's talk to God. And what did they teach you to pray? Often they would teach you to pray, God is great. God is thoroughly biblical understanding of God. This is the picture of God that Isaiah paints. It is a picture of a God of greatness, a God of glory, a God of might, a God of strength. And the kind of God who wants to gather his people to his bosom, who wants to lead the mother lamb and all the lambs that follow. A God of tenderness and a God of might, a God that is God. You see, God's people had begun to worship a very faulty God. They began to worship themselves. Oh, they, they worshiped idols for sure, but isn't every idol just a, a little manifestation of the self that you stuff down in your pocket? One of the thinkers du jour, one of the great the thinkers of the day that people are running to is Ayn Rand. She famously said, man is the only end in himself. Her novels and her philosophy are about that. The fountainhead is a celebration of man worship, and people are running to those notions. We have to strip ourselves from our commitments to God because God wants to cripple us. We must rise up and, and with our shoulders squared and our eyes looking forward, we must change the world. We must be our gods. And God, God will have no rivals because only God is good. And so he paints a picture of who he is. As the God without rival who will carry us, carry us in his arms. One of my fondest memories about living in New Orleans was meeting Brennan Manning one afternoon. Brennan Manning uh, was a defrocked Catholic priest who fell madly in love with Jesus. There would be seasons in his life where he was going around preaching the gospel. There would be seasons of his life where he would backslide into a broken stupor of alcoholism. He loved God 
and he would mess up royally, but he would never quit. And, and God would, would touch him and call him back to himself when he would run passionately. He fell in love with God that is a biblical picture of God. I, I once hear him, heard him say, trying to embrace the love of God is like trying to catch a hurricane in a shrimp net. He lived in Bayou Battery, Alabama. He'd seen shrimp nets. He'd seen hurricanes. He knew that God's love was incomprehensibly large and beautiful and powerful. That the God of the Bible was amazing and utterly unique. He once said this, I want neither a terrorist spirituality that keeps me in a perpetual state of fright about being in right relationship with my heavenly Father, nor a sappy spirituality that portrays God as such a benign teddy bear that there is no aberrant behavior or desire of mine that he will not condone. I want a relationship with the Abba of Jesus, who is infinitely compassionate, compassionate with my brokenness, and yet at the same time, an awesome, incomprehensible, and unwieldy mystery. Isaiah was called to comfort God's people, and one of the ways he did it was to paint them a picture of who God really was. A tender shepherd God, strong in might and power. The kind of God who is able to save. And then the final, this is where it, it wraps up for, for him in comforting God's people, having given them a picture of who he is and a call uh, to draw near to, to him. He calls them to wait, to trust in him. Beginning in verse 27, we read, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint nor grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Even use, even the strong ones, even the ones that still have swagger, even the use will fall exhausted. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. He calls them. He invites them to wait on the Lord, to trust in the Lord. How do you wait on God? You pray. You pray like in verse uh, 2 of chapter 33. Oh, Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. God, be our help. Oh, Lord, make haste to help me. How do we do it? We think. We think about God. There's this great scene in chapter 44 where someone is given over to idolatry. And this is the comment. They feed on ashes. A deluded mind has led him astray. He cannot see himself or say, Is not this thing in my right hand a fraud? Why do we do the dumb things that we do? Because we, we have a mind that gets deluded. And our thinking becomes unclear. And we look at the situation so closely and we attempt so many things that it just we don't see it right. And we're not able to say, All these things I'm trying other than God, they're frauds. They're fake. 
How do we wait on the Lord? We listen. There's so many people that have just, just turned them off. And there's nothing left to learn. There's nothing left to hear from God. There's no growth to be had. There is this great line in chapter 50 where Isaiah, where Isaiah says this. He says, morning by morning he wakens. He wakens my ear to listen as those who are taught. How about that as a prayer? God, waken my ear to listen. I want to hear you. I want to hear the, the clarity of your word. I want to hear your direction. Waken my ear to listen. We think, we listen, we pray, we act. This scene, he says, he'll help them mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and they won't get tired. They'll walk and they won't fall down. Now it seems like you're kind of going backwards here. It seems like, hey, if you really got this right, you'd go from walking to running to flying. You know, you're taking off. I had a friend who was a baseball coach. He had a kid that was so fast. Pedal High School. He had a kid that was so fast. He's standing in the third base coach's box, and this would be the steal sign. He'd just go. <laughs> that kid would take off. You know, he'd steal every bag. Like, if you really got this right, Isaiah, it would be walking and running and flying. Flying's an occasional experience. Maybe he had in his mind those beautiful scenes where when God brought them out uh, of, their, uh, of their slavery, that he, he bore them on eagle's wings. Uh, flying is an occasional moment in life. And, and yeah, there are moments where God helps us to fly, to move from this place to that place. There are moments where we take off running and it's just like, and those are occasional seasons, but we walk every day of our life. We walk every day of our life. And God wanted them to know that he wasn't just the God of the, the exodus and the God who could bring them out of the exile, but he was the God of the every single day of their life. And this is where rubber meets the road. This is where water hits the wheel. Paige Kelly said, it is in the monotony of everyday life that the man of faith reveals his true character. And it's in the monotony of everyday life that we desperately need a God of comfort. You say, I just don't know. I don't know if I can get up tomorrow morning and do it again. Comfort. Comfort my people. And tell them to call on me and to say, God... You be my arm. You be my Savior in my time of trouble. I need your help. Make haste to help me. God loves you very much. And he's zealous for your heart. And he wants you as his own completely. He is a wild and wonderful mystery. The God of creation and the God of history's consummation. The God who makes promises and keeps them. And he's tender. He's tender. So strong. So in, incomparable. And so tender. 
today as we sing together, my hope is that you'll just cast your whole life into his arms, his care. And that today you'll be renewed in your commitment to walk with and be loved by the God of creation and the God of Calvary, the God of Exodus, the God who brought him out of the exile, God who will bring you out of your exile. Would you wait on the Lord and be renewed? God, we thank you for a chance to worship in this place today. We thank you for the gift of worship. We thank you for the witness of Scripture. We thank you that there have been those that have gone before us that have experienced life with you and have come out to tell about that. And we're grateful, God, that you are the God of all comfort. God, I pray as I look around this room today, I pray that you would comfort your people. That they would open themselves up for you being the God that you want to be for them. God, I pray that you would help them as they walk and not to stumble. Lord, when they do, that you'd pick them up and you'd clean them up and you'd carry them that next, that next little piece of the way. Be strong, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Let's stand and let's sing.